Steve August Falci Rove Galer. I'm Kieran Murray. You're all very welcome to this evening's event. This is the final of the three events about Dublin and the Great War. And this evening we're going to look at the Royal Dublin Fusiliers and also at how the Great War is remembered. As well as that, we'll have a selection of songs from the era from Ongolian singers. We'll be joined by Jennifer Wellington. Dr. Wellington is a lecturer in modern history at UCD. Her research focuses on the cultural history of warfare in the first half of the 20th century, and her PhD was awarded the Hans Gatzka Prize in 2013. Her book, Exhibiting War, The Great War Museums and Memory in Britain, Canada and Australia, will be published by Cambridge University Press in September. But first this evening, we'll speak to Tom Burke. Tom is an engineer and a GAA fan who founded the Royal Dublin Fusiliers Association in 1995 after a chance encounter with a war veteran. He received an MBE for significant contribution that the association has made to British-Irish relations. As well as organising exhibitions and events highlighting the Irish involvement in the Great War, the association has met Republican and Loyalist groups in the North to explore aspects of their shared heritage. Tom's new book, From Messines to Carrick Hill, Writing Home from the Great War will be published next month, and more on that later. But first we go to Fergus Russell from Angolene for a song. And Fergus, this is Sergeant William Bailey. Yeah, I'm going to sing Sergeant William Bailey. It was written by Paddock Carney, who was the uncle of the Baines, Brennan Bain and Dominic Bain. Oh, Sergeant William Bailey was a man of high renown. In search of gallant young recruits, he used to scour the town. His face was full and swarthy, of medals he had forty, and ribbons on his chest, red, white, and blue. It was he that looked a hero, he made the people stare, oh, as he stood on Dumphy's corner to the loo. Now Sergeant William Bailey on Dunphy Corner stands In Tyson Dublin young fellas did die in foreign lands Oh to improve your station he shouts in high elation Oh come and fight for king and country too but for all the noise he's making, the bait they hadn't taken from Sergeant William Bailey to the loo. But alas, for human greatness, every dog he has his day. And Sergeant William Bailey, he is getting old and grey. Some rebel youths with placards have called his army blackguards and told the Irish youth just what to do. Now, in spite of fife and drumming, no more recruits are coming to Sergeant William Bailey to the loo. Now Sergeant William Bailey, what a wretched sight to see. To the loo, the loo, the loo, the loo. The back that once was firm and straight is almost bent in tree. To the loo, the loo, the loo, the loo. No longer youths are willing to take his dirty shilling and things for him are looking my 
mighty blue. He has lost his occupation. Let's sing in jubilation for Sergeant William Bailey Toorloo. He has lost his occupation. Let's sing in celebration for Sergeant William Bailey Toorloo. Thank you. Mahu Fergus, a mighty rendition of that altogether. But now to Tom and the Dublin Fusiliers, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, Tom. Tell us, what was it like? Who were the Dublin Fusiliers over 100 years ago? Would you know them if you seen them around town? Were they kind of a respected group or set, set yeah, the scene for us a bit? Fergus has given us a good description of one of them there <laughs> in his song. Uh, I remember singing that to good old Admiral Nelson, but it's another, another day's work. Well, first of all, the Dublin Fusiliers were, there were an Irish regiment in the British Army. That's the first thing to say about them. They go right back to the East India Company, the John Company, who set up a private army to protect their plundering, if you like, in in India. Many of the recruits were Irish primarily because of the statute ban with Catholic emancipation, that Catholics couldn't join the British Army. So this was a way out for... They had a recruiting office. The East India Company had a recruiting office in Dame Street. Many of the Irish regiments, in fact, that fought in the First World War can trace their origins back to India. And you can see that Indian connection with the regimental badge that they, they have. And people, I suppose, around Dublin would wreck If they looked up at the Arts and Stevens screen, they'd see this magnificent bronze plaque. And please don't touch it. It's been there for 100 years. Leave it alone. Not in anybody harm. But you'll see an elephant and a tiger emblazoned onto this badge. And if you look at the Munster Fusiliers regimental cap, it's just simply a tiger. It's the Bengal tiger. So they sort of morphed from this India, East India Company private army into a full-blown regiment of the British Army. And Tom, the um, you brought along an emblem, I did, uh, yeah, emblem yeah. there. Do you want to hold it up so people can yeah, see it? And maybe I shouldn't have really. Describe but, uh, it for audio. <laughs> Jennifer's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll put it back there. It's basically an old gentleman, his wife, many years ago. I just thought I'd bring it along to give you an idea of the Indian origins of it. Uh, it's the elephant, the tigers on the top, elephant on the bottom, and the yellow, f- uh, all fusilier regiments of the British Army had this exploding grenade. So it could be identified, to answer your question, they would be a fusilier regiment, and they would be known as Dublin Fusiliers because it had this regimental tiger and elephant. No other regiment of the British Army, I think it was the Leicestershire Regiment, took the emblem as their tiger. So I'm going to put it away now. Uh, and uh, Tom was telling me beforehand that he thinks that the Dublin football well, team took their colour from the from It's the a emblem. long shot, but uh, I would dare be, be the man to draw a line between the British Army and the GAA, but uh, that's Shinkashtella. So, was it a good job? Did uh, lots of young men want to go in and join well, the Fusiliers? That brings us to, well, it's a huge question that, I mean, um, depends on what time of the period of history I asked that question. If I was around Dublin before the Boer War around 1900 and you asked that question, my answer would be, yes, I'll join for a job. You know, it's, it's, it was a source of employment. It was the army of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. It was the army. People had joined the army. Certainly not for any, I doubt, for in that particular period for any great sort of uh, sentiments of loyalism or, or, or to the crown. It was purely a job. Now, you ask the question, turn the, bring the clock forward to 1914, you ask the same question, you'd get a different answer. The reason that there's all kinds of academic work going on about why fellas enlisted, and it's not just purely confined to double fusiliers, it's why people enlisted in the First World War at all. And a far better military historian than I am called Professor Peter Simpkins says there's many reasons why men joined the army in 1914 as, as equal to the number of men who joined the army. So essentially there are thousands of reasons. But you can bring it down to categories. 
And the kind of categories that you could bring it down to about three. One would be, first of all, adventure. I would put adventure on the top of the list. If you look at the death casualties, statistics for the death, it's your window into that social image breakdown of them. Average age of the fellows who were killed in the Dublin Fusilier is between 19 and 22 years of age. So that gives you an idea of what kind of social bracket these people were in. So you can, can so you sort of say to yourself, well, 19, 21 years of age, what do you know about politics? What do you know about the driving force of politics? So my conclusion is that adventure has quite a high category of the reasons why fellows enlisted. Secondly, it was economic, and that would have been into an older cohort for economic reasons. And third one, particularly in Ireland's case, was political. For example, 23,000 members of the national volunteers who supported John Redmond enlisted. Not all Dublin Fusiliers, now. Compare that to the 120,000 who were members of the national volunteers in November 1913. It's not a lot. So in other words, what I'm saying is that despite Redmond's appeal in September 1914 for men to enlist, not many bums ended up on the trenches. The majority of them stayed at home. The majority of them didn't go with Pierce either. So it's a whole big debate. Yeah. And then... Would you say that, did they come from the tenements? Did lots of them, yeah. you mentioned the economic thing, was there a lot of the ordinary soldiers came from the tenements and did the officer class come from other parts of Dublin? How does that, is well, there a breakdown? In, in any army, my own conclusion is that an army reflects the society from which it's recruited. Okay, so in 1914, if you were to look at the British Army, uh, the Irish Regiment of the British Army, you get a, ref- a reflection of the society from which that army is recruited. Now, my own studies on death numbers, and it's the only way you're going to do this, the vast majority of them came from between the canals. Dublin 8, Dublin 1, 2. The vast majority of the fellows who were killed. And as a cohort, Dublin Southside. But in, in itself, it's an interesting sort of, sort of the, as I call them, Dublin Force Brigade. So they would have been your sort of Anglo-Irish. But certainly within the canals, between you know, Dublin 8, is where the majority of the casualties occurred. That even changed as the war progressed. And, and how did they get on then once the war started? How did they fare? Tell us a bit about that kind of toughs and toughs part of it. Well, the, the Tufts, among the Tufts, the 2nd Battalion were called the Old Tufts. Just probably without silly nicknames, but the Tufts bit came from the Gallipoli campaign when you had a company of the 7th Battalion uh, who were, that sort of came from the educated classes, that's the best way to put it, educated um, sort of professional middle classes who were, didn't want to enlist, didn't want to join up with the rest of the ruffians from around Pier Street and the Liberties. So they sort of stayed on their own and they were given the nickname the Toffs among the Toffs. Separate issue. But in how they fared in 1914, well, the two battalions, which the, any regular regiment of the British Army would have had at the time, was a home battalion based, and home would have been either in Dublin or in Gravesend in England, and an away battalion mostly been in India. So the people who were at home at the time was the second battalion. And essentially, to make a long story short, they got a hammering within a couple of weeks at a place called Lecateau, one of the opening battles of August 1914. And the, about 80% of those fellows were, were, were Irish-born. vast majority of those Irish-born from the centre of Dublin, as I told you. The reasons those fellows joined up would have been for economic reasons. Economic and adventure. And when you say adventure and all this, the war will be over by Christmas, and did I think it was going to be a bit of crack? I mean, was it a shock that there was a slaughter? Well, you can see that from letters coming back of your ordinary soldier, your volunteer. It's, it's a little bit more complicated. A lot of them, when, when you read between the lines, they sort of say they've made a mistake here. I, should, I shouldn't have done this. You know, this, this is mad. I want to get out of here. So that's essentially what's coming between the They're not going to say that in the letter, but if you kind of peel back what the sentiments are. So the reality hit, and, and what's more is then there was advertisements in the Irish papers of the death lists. I mean, how wonderful a recruitment is that going to be when you see, you know, the, the Evening Herald splattered with you know, your neighbours, 
names and addresses of who was killed. So, and yet they still kept coming. The recruitment dropped off drastically. I mean, I think it was 50,000 enlisted in the first couple of months of the war, and that dropped down to about eight or 9,000 within, within a month. So the reality of the war came back to Ireland, literally. It came back in boxes, and it came back in, in letters. And then what about the 1916 rising? People probably forget that there was some Royal Dublin Fusiliers stationed in Dublin, and they took part Pretty in the rising. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a part uh, of... Uh, we, we have to talk about it. It's, it's reality. There was two battalions of Dublin, three battalions of Dublin Fusiliers put down the Easter Rising. Simple as that. Twelve of them were killed. They put down the Easter Rising in two places, many two places. South, North Circular Road, up around Fibsborough. And the, the 10th Battalion took on the Dublin's, uh, the volunteers in Dublin Castle. And it's a huge argument, Karen. I mean, to go into it as to what were their attitudes of the soldiers like in terms of when they were serving the British Army at the time, was it, it, again, I'll go back to that argument, an army reflects the society from which it came from. I could sum it up really in about three or four words. The attitude of, British, of Irishmen in the British Army towards the Easter Rising went from surprise, okay, to rejection, to disillusionment, to revenge. On that point about what kind of city Dublin was at the time and what the people, what side they might have come down and how they felt. Maybe that brings us to Messine. Yep. And speaking of letters, your book, your next book yeah. is a lot about... Um, Sug the book. <laughs> a, a Malahide man. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who, Carrie Kill. Carrie Kill. And he, Captain... He was, was a second lieutenant. Second lieutenant. Yeah. 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 Gosh, he'd be, he'd be very posh to call him a captain. Uh, yeah, Wall, he, he, Captain Wall. Michael yeah. Wall, yeah. Yeah. So... He wrote home about his time, mm-hmm. but Messine itself became particularly relevant and important afterward. Well, we're in 2017. We're coming close to the centenary of commemorations of 2017. And if Messine's for, to, for your audience, if you, if you consider Passchendaele or the Third Battle of Ypres, as it was called, that took place in, began in July 1917 as a Shakespearean tragedy, which it, it was a tragedy. The Battle of Messines would be considered as Act One, Scene One. In other words, Passchendaele or the Third Battle of Ypres would never have happened without this. And basically what happened was, the reason behind it was that, it keeps summarising a couple of words, but mainly it was the German U-boat, following the breakdown and the imposition of unconditional submarine warfare in February 1917, the Germans unleashed their submarine fleet on the Allied supply lines to across the Channel. And they were being hammered. I mean, the head of the Admiralty basically told the head of the British Army, said, look, we don't sort out this German U-boat situation. We're going to lose the war. Because, so they, it, was, it was an imperative on the British, under this fellow called General Haig, to knock out that, that threat, which and they were operating out of Zeebrugge and Ostend in northern Belgium. So that, had, that was the main reason. So the push on out then, it was, so converting the break out to a breakthrough was the big problem. So the first thing that had to happen, if you look at the, around the Belgian city of, of Ypres, it's shaped like a sickle. The German line around is shaped like a sickle. And so for the British, before they could break out anywhere, they had to take the bottom part of the sickle here, which was the white sheet Messines Ridge. And if they grabbed that, and by the way, there were Australian New Zealand troops there, the Anzacs were there, they took, they actually took Messines Village. So the, the word Messines is sort of a, it's a generic term, but in fairness to the Australians and New Zealanders... Maybe just on that, Tom, just to pause, pause you there for a minute. Yeah. Jennifer, with Messines then and with, with the Anzac forces, was that also a significant battle for them? Well, yeah, yeah, it's one of the significant battles. Um, part of the reason for that is the Australians and New Zealanders are fighting together as a um, two Anzac kind of 
And that's the first time they've done that since they were fighting together at Gallipoli in 1915, because then they'd subsequently been fighting in various places separately. So here the Australians and New Zealanders are fighting it together again. The second thing is it's the first major battle for the 3rd Australian Division. So there's already two Australian Divisions have been fighting. It's the 3rd Australian Division is part of that ANZAC Corps have arrived at the front. So it's their first big battle together. And so that's the other thing, that they remember it as a success, um, although there are lots and lots of casualties. And, so. and is that particularly important? Because obviously at places like Gallipoli, there was a huge, <laughs> large-scale slaughter. So was this seen as a kind of, as a victory in itself? Well, yeah. <laughs> was, that, was that badly needed? Tom, is that why it's also significant that, that it was a, it was a, a victory? victory. Well, all victories are celebrated. We don't we don't yeah. celebrate losses. Uh, there were no medals issued for Gallipoli. The no, I mean Gallipoli was like you know so bad that there was a parliamentary inquiry into why it was such a balls up. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, so this is definitely you know taken seen differently, and it's um, it's a ridge that's taken as well, and so it's taking the high ground, which is always seen as very important as well. And uh, Tom, did you have a sample of a letter? It was so- well, it's just one little point on the Easter yeah. Rising bit. There were lots of brothers involved in the Easter Rising who took different sides. For example, the, the chap I wrote about, Michael Wall, he went to Joey's in Fairview. Uh, the Soren brothers, from uh, one went, joined the Royal Army Medical Corps, the other guy joined the Irish Volunteers. The Neelan brothers, one joined the 10th Dublins, fighting against each other in Easter Week 1916. But I'll just summarise just quickly. I don't want to take the talk to the debate but I'll just summarise uh, there was a, guy, a chap called Eugene Sheehy whose father was a barrister in Cork and he joined the Dublin Fusiliers as an officer as a Catholic lad and uh, many years after the Rising he sort of looking back on the Rising and the impact the Rising had on sort of Irish nationalism and the fellows who had joined the British Army at the time there was that dichotomy of conscience nearly as to what was going to happen so he, he, he wrote this and I'll just read quickly read it out he said the rising in Easter week was a source of heartbreak to me and to many of the tens of thousands of nationalists of Irish nationalists who joined the British army we had done so at the request of our leaders who were the elected representatives of the people and the vast majority of the nation applauded our action the rising was not even approved by the leaders of Sinn Féin As the tide of Irish public opinion gradually changed and hostility to England grew, we did not quite know where we stood or where our duty lay. The threat of conscription in 1918 and the ultimate betrayal of Redmond by the British Parliament made those of us who survived feel that the thousands of Irishmen who died in Flanders, France and Gallipoli had made their sacrifice in vain. Very noble words. We'll have a look again at maybe how the Dublin Fusiliers are remembered, but we'll go to a song. And we're going to have Barry Gleeson singing this one. Yeah, I'd like to sing the Dublin Fusiliers, which is written by Harry O'Donovan for uh, Jimmy O'Dea many years ago. It's not meant to be taken too seriously. And I'd like to sing it for, uh, for Pierce Lally, who died in April of this year. He was 24 years with uh, the FCA there from Tonnelgee Road and very much associated with Parnells, another, the, the local club here. So this is the Dublin Fusiliers, and the reason I'm doing that is not only do I think he's a great guy, but um, this was one of his party pieces. You may talk about the engines with their tommyhawks and spears, of Balfour's royal peelers, the heroes of recent years. And also I might mention the British grenadiers. Sure, none of them was in it with the double and fusiliers. You heard about the light brigade and of the deeds they've done, and of the other regiments that many victories won. But the pride of all the armies, dragoons or carabineers, is that 
noble band of warriors. The double and fusiliers. So then left, turn, right about face. This is the way we go. Charging with fixed bayonets, the terror of every foe. The glory of old Ireland, as proud as buccaneers. And a credit to creation, aha. Those double and fusiliers. You heard about the war between the Russians and the Brits. The Tsar one day was reading an old copy of Titbits. Oh, when the general came to him, he threw himself down in tears. Says he, we'd better scarper, here's the double and fusiliers. The Tsar commenced to tremble and bit his under lip. Begara boys, says he, I think we'd better take the tip. Them devils comes from Dublin, and to judge from what I hears, they're demons of militia men. Those double and fusiliers, the Tsar, he said, get ready, lads, lay down each sword and gun, take off your shoes and stockings, and when I tell yous run, oh, they never stop, but started as amidst three ringing cheers, came a shower of bricks and bullets from the double and fusiliers, the time that Julius Caesar tried to land down at Ring's End, the Coast Guards couldn't stop them, so the Dublins they did send, and just as they was landing there, this year came to their ears, go back to Rome like blazes, here's the double and fusiliers, so then left, turn right about face, this is the way we go, charging with fixed bayonets, the terror of every foe, the glory of old Ireland, as proud as buccaneers, and a credit to creation, aha, those Dublin Fusiliers. Come on, good. Thanks, Barry. That was fantastic and a, a nice dedication as well there. I can never quite figure out when I hear that song whether it's kind of meant to honour the old soldiers or whether it's just, just a slagging song. Jennifer, maybe to bring you in there, when it comes to how the First World War is remembered in Australia, is it quite different than how it's remembered in Ireland? Very, very different. I mean, Australia is a very different case because, you know, it it is at the time a self-governing British Dominion, British settler colony, effectively. So, you know, there's very, very strong ties with Great Britain and uh, at this time. But at the same time, they've all the different colonies have come together in 1901 to federate into one into Australia. Uh, and so they're desperate, they're, they're looking for stories about themselves, a national birth myth in a, in a way, and the First World War provides that. So it's remembered as a noble tragedy, but of uh, the birth of the nation as well, a kind of a baptism of fire. It's very similar thing happens in, with Canada, very similar thing with New Zealand, um, and also with Turkey, for example, also has a national birth myth of modern Turkey coming out of the Great War. So would you think, would there be songs that would have been mocking the soldiers? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly composed by the soldiers themselves because they had a pretty good sense of humour. The soldiers were definitely um, celebrated and remembered in a much, much, much more positive light than you know, would have hap- than happened in Ireland. So. And when it comes to how they were remembered, we were talking earlier and you were telling me about the, the statue of the Australian soldier and the German <laughs> eagle. So maybe tell us a bit about that oh, one. Oh, OK. So um, 
we're talking a little bit about how after the war there's like lots of different ways that soldiers are, are remembered and the, and the dead are remembered and you know for example there's lots and lots of local memorials are built all over the place in loads and loads of countries but one phenomenon that happens is on battlefield memorials which are usually built with money from the government of different countries like on the actual battlefield where people from that country fought and there's loads of these are built um, you know for example in France and in Belgium in, in the 1920s and the 1930s one memorial that was also built in the interwar years was the memorial to the Australian 2nd Division and it was made by the sculptor Seaweb Gilbert who was a um, a self-taught Australian sculptor. He'd actually originally trained as a pastry chef and then later went to art school to do drawing but he was a, a sculptor who made a lot of war memorials and this memorial... It was dedicated in the 1920s. Um, Field Marshal Foch, the French Field Marshal, was at the dedication. And this memorial was an enormous, overgrown-sized Australian soldier in the act of bayoneting a German eagle. So it's a very, very belligerent war memorial. And the funny thing about this story is that in 1940, when the Germans were on their way through invading France in 1940, um, German soldiers destroyed it. So it doesn't exist anymore. Were there times when war memorials were very warlike and very bellicose? Was that the kind of message and did they become a bit gentler? I know some of them, if you ever looked up any of this stuff, there's a reindeer. Okay, it's a caribou, but I don't know what it's meant to make you think or what it means to somebody, but when you look at it, there's a Welsh dragon and there's lots of, there's animals. Well, these are these specific kind of national memorials that are all over the place on the Western Front. So the caribou you're talking about is at the Newfoundland Memorial, because Newfoundland was a British Dominion also, it was a, but it was a separate colony. It didn't join Canada <coughs> till after the Second World War. So the Newfoundland Memorial is where on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in July 1916, it's where the Newfoundland Regiment was massacred early in the morning. And so that they built a memorial to that regiment, which is using their symbols. The same thing with the, the Welsh dragon. It's again, it's, it's their sort of national memorial, if you will. So using these sorts of symbols. I don't know if a caribou or a dragon are especially belligerent in the same way as a soldier bayoneting an eagle. So what I would say is there's an array of memorials and some of them are quite belligerent but most of them tend to be kind of very allegorical you might have figures of you know victory or peace or like you know often as a woman or um marianne was a symbol of france again you'd get you know as a woman that sort of thing or obelisks are very very common they're cheap they don't offend anyone um you might have some that have religious symbols but they tend to steer away from them if it's a multi-religious society and it might cause a problem there are a couple but only a couple because they're highly unusual pacifist memorials including one in a place called uh, Gentilleux in France, which actually has, it, it's got a child pointing to this slogan, which basically says in French, cursed is war. But that was actually so controversial that they never formally dedicated it till about 1990, even though it was there. And soldiers from a camp nearby would avert their eyes when they walked past it, that sort of thing. So, you know, these things are always very, there's a lot of views on these, I suppose. And so allowing that there was going you know, to, slaughter on a massive scale even mm -hmm. I think something like 40,000 Irish men died are there many of the monuments are there are there anti-war many monuments well I think I think that um the that one in France I just described is about as close as you get but most of them aren't actually because the the act of building memorial is to try and to give all that slaughter meaning in a way like you know a lot of them are, are erected very soon after the war by people who've lost people they love and they so they want 
the sacrifice to be for something. Because to say that the death is meaningless is almost like piling on more hurt. And so a lot of people who are building memorials are, are trying to give a meaning. So they might say for France or they might say, you know, for liberty or for for peace, you know, that giving a cause, even if they didn't really fight for that cause, it's like it's to give comfort to the bereaved, a lot of it, you know. And then what about, and maybe we could bring Tom in a little bit, but what about the memorials in Ireland? Have you visited them? Can you, are they I, obvious? I could make uh, a few comments about them, which is obviously there's a big north-south difference. There's more of them in the north, and, they, and the pattern in the north looks more like what you see in France or what you'd see in, in England or Wales or whatever, which is, you know, more figurative, lots of figures of sad soldiers, that sort of thing, in a ta- more likely to be in a town square or in a public place and more likely to you know, be the focus of regular remembrance ceremonies. In the south, they tend to be more in church grounds, plaques in churches, this sort of thing, non-figurative, so don't necessarily feature the figure of a soldier, much more things like a lot of Celtic crosses, that sort of symbolism. Schools, there are memorials in some schools, but it tends to be posh schools, like Clongos has a First World War memorial, for example. There are some exceptions. There are some like public space memorials. So there's one, I think, on the shore in Bray, and there's one down in, in Cork as well, which is the kind of soldier with arms reversed. But these are kind of more exceptions, where you would see these everywhere. Like in France, like every town square, like everywhere, there'd be a First World War memorial. They're absolutely everywhere. And the big divide in France is that the ones in public space are very secular and republican. So they might have figures of Marianne or Victory or whatever, but can't be religious because of the way the separation of church and state works so thoroughly in the French Republic. But then within churches, you'd have religious memorials as well. But in Ireland, there's like, in, in the South, there's just a lot less of that. Yeah. And Tom, maybe then we, we were talking about that tension after 1916 and how the soldiers felt mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of how they were remembered. Is there or was there ever any defacing of memorials or were they ever vandalised? Or One happened to the day in Glasnevin. So that, that sort of strike back of, of against what people perceive as being British and imperial. Uh, uh, just to add one little point to Jennifer's thing, uh, uh, contribution, um, Royal Memorials in Ireland, uh, they're very much a contentious issue. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah. look at Dennis Gillen what happened at Enniskillen. This was a symbol, as Jennifer pointed out, of the grieving soldier. And yet he was the subject of, a, of a, an IRA atrocity. Yeah, he was uh, up, yeah. Well, he, he was targeted, but yeah. they knew who they were targeting. So First World War in Ireland, in terms of memory, we could be here all night talking about it, yeah. um, you know. And it is a particularly contentious, and it's a straight down the middle, yeah. sectarian, religious, if you like, cultural thing. And to answer your question about memorials in Ireland, war memorials, again, Jennifer mentioned they're in churches. They're in Protestant churches. Oh, there are ones in Catholic there churches are one, too. Yeah, there, there are, but <laughs> predominantly in uh, you know, war memorials. And in, maybe in, to in, jump in back to, to Messine and the Battle of Messine, yeah. but now there's a, a Round Tower memorial. Yes. What, how significant was that whole remembering Messine? Well, if I can blow my trumpet, I, I was on the committee that built that. Uh, with Paddy Hart and Glenn Barr, uh, and here you had a nationalist politician and a UDA commander. That said quite a bit, and the people who were on that committee were very interesting people, I'll leave it at that. So we built this peace park, and it was about, the idea of it was, and, it, and it, you know, there's a tentative link there between what, what happened at Messines when the two Irish divisions sought, fought, sought, fought side by side. It was mainly nationalist politicians, people like Redmond's brother, Willie Redmond, 
and Stephen Gwynn, who saw this idea of use it as a kind of a political, I wouldn't say weapon, but the imagery of the two divisions, nationalist unions fighting side by side, nationalist politicians tried to use it as some kind of way of, of fostering this concept of, of a united Ireland, a united approach to a common problem. That thinking transcended itself in 1998. It didn't happen out of the blue. It was during the peace process where it linked that concept of the two divisions fighting side by side to build this peace park in, in Messines. And it worked. And Tom, was it a surprise to the more unionist background in the North, the unionist community, that the Southern Irish had played such a yeah, major well, role? Well, yeah. I mean, I remember myself being, t- being told, that you, you guys have the famine, leave us the psalm by one unionist <laughs> councillor in Enniskillen, you know. Uh, so, I mean, we could be here all night talking about this one. Well, but, uh, also, like, I was going to say, if you think about big memorials like this, like there's a the whole story of the Island Bridge Memorial here yes. in Dublin, yeah. which is, you know, you know, I talked about those big memorials that exist on the battlefields. There's the big British memorial to the missing at, missing at Tiepval. It's designed by a guy called Ed, Edward Lutch, Edwin Lutchens, who also designed the cenotaph in Whitehall. And then he also is the guy behind the Island Bridge Memorial, which is out, out near, you know, Phoenix Park. And when they were originally planning, they were planning a memorial to the Irish soldiers who died in the First World War, right after the war, there were debates about where to put such a memorial. And there were ideas that they might put it in Merrion Square. And then you have Kevin O'Higgins in a doll debate in the 1920s said, no way, I don't want anyone coming to Dublin, you know, and getting the idea. I don't want visitors to this country thinking that the sacrifice of those who fought for, for Britain in the war had anything to do with the foundation of this state, which is absolutely fascinating for a guy who um, he had uncles who'd served in the Royal Navy and in the, in the British Army as well. So there was also a very explicit idea that we need to push how we remember and how we memorialise this, you know, away from the nation of who we are as a nation, which is the complete opposite of what you get, say, in somewhere like Australia or New Zealand. When you have these uh, huge memorials and people pay homage to them and you've got thousands of people visiting them, what happens over time? I mean, do they fall out of favour and do people, as generations pass, do people kind of forget and they... Well, I I just mentioned Island Bridge, which existed and, you know, was used some by the Legion, which then they could not do during the emergency. So that was all kind of not on from 1939. And and then it falls into complete disrepair until it's done up and actually formally dedicated in the 1980s. There are all sorts of reasons why some memorials become more significant over time or fall out of disrepair and what happens to the meaning because the meaning also morphs as well so you know you have something that's built initially as a focal point for for mourning for example so for example like the british army they don't repatriate any of the dead bodies they're all buried you know where where they die if they're buried at all loads of them are just completely missing there are no remains so they build these monuments to the missing so you know there is a sense where you have things memorials that are initially built as a focal point for people to mourn, who can't visit a grave, that sort of thing. But then over time, well, once everybody who actually knew knew the dead person is dead, well, what are these memorials used for? And they're often instrumentalised in various ways. Some some of them are political. You know, so sometimes you might have a government saying, well, we want to push this particular narrative of what our country is all about. And so they'll put money into commemorative ceremonies and to educational programs for why we should remember this particular battle or you know this particular event so that can happen or you have peaks and troughs so for example 
memorials in places that are not Ireland who were involved in, in the Second World War, you have these First World War memorials who, they're, you know, it's, it's dipping off a bit in terms of people who actually knew the dead. But then the Second World War happens, so they add the names of the dead from the Second World War to the First World War memorial. And then, you know, it picks up again as a focal point for remembering at that point. And then you have, you know, it might go along for a while and then dip off again, but then you have this sort of real resurgence in the 1990s, for example, partly around the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. And there's a lot of TV shows and rediscovering all of this. There's also a surge in people doing family history. So there's a lot of people who are going in and finding the records. They're just beginning to put things online and finding the records of their families and then they get involved. And you have people talk about like a memory boom in the 1990s and afterwards of people looking into this period and remembering this period. Then again, like I said, it depends on the, on the country, right? So you could argue that in Australia there's politicians who like this version of the past and want to say that, yes, this is the birth of the nation and it's very convenient that... And then you have other critics of that who say, well, that's very interesting. How is it that a whole bunch of white men managed to give birth to the nation? Making the argument of where are the women... And, you know, isn't it a bit awkward that the actual birth of the nation involved the British showing up and, you know, dispossessing the Aboriginal people? You know, so it's these contested battles over what, what these things are for, basically. Maybe we'll go out to the audience for a couple of questions. There's just one little point I'd like to make about the memorials in Ireland and its relation to the peace process. There's no co- it is a great coincidence that the re-emergence of interest, of particularly personal interest, of Ireland, Southern Ireland, the First World War, and the emergence of these memorials runs parallel with the peace process. No, well, I think that's very true, and there's a, a lot of memorials that have been being built yes. very recently yes. and dedicated very recently. So it's all also around not only the peace process, but also around the centenary. Again, there's this idea of anniversaries spurring interest and spurring funding as yeah. well. Like governments go, oh, great, an anniversary, and they give money mm-hmm. to people who want to celebrate that or commemorate that or whatever. So. But I suppose there's a, there's a Wellington monument in the Phoenix Park. Don't but touch it. Don't go there either. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. <laughs> well, they used to use that in the 1920s. They did, yes. So yeah. in, the, in the 1920s, yeah. it was used as a focal point for um, remembrance ceremonies on the 11th of November, yeah. which did used to happen yeah. until for political reasons. Um, but does yeah. it get too far back? I mean, does it get to the point where you, you, you can't remember who died in the Napoleonic Wars? Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, again, like a memorial only works if it... If you think about it, memory is something you do. It's not something that just is, it's something you do. And so memorials only work if people are using them and doing things with them, you know. So you could argue that they're a focal point for ritual, for for remembrance ceremonies, for wreath-laying, for, you know, singing songs, saying prayers, all these sorts of things. So even though it was a long time ago, the Battle of the Boyne is still an important memorial because site. It, because pe- well, exactly, because it's still, like, done. It's still a thing that is done, mm. if you like. But other battles that have happened that have not... No one has chosen to carry that memory forth in a series of events, rituals, activities, then they kind of disappear. But I'll go back to my original statement. The throwing of paint over the, the wall in Glasnevin is an act of, I think, violence against a memorial. It's a very contemporary kind of... But it's also interesting because it's an act of a... It, in its way, it's an act of memory because it's enacting yeah, yeah. a different memory. Yeah, exactly. Trying to destroy uh, a memory. Yeah. So, some regards, yeah. Do we, will we go out to the audience? Oh, we have someone? Yeah. I actually work as a tour guide and I do tours in the north transept of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And we have a lot of memorials to the fallen in St. Patrick's, the Dublin Fusiliers amongst thing. And when I'm doing a tour, I always like to emphasise the point that... Whether we like it or not, at that moment in our history, we were part 
of the British Empire. And it's not for us to judge why people fought and died. We make decisions now based on, on information we have at hand and we'll be judged in 100 years' time. But it's to reconcile that we are where we are today now because of the sacrifices all these people made back then. And, you know, I was just wondering how you guys feel about the way we are perceived to judge the people in our history, if you know what I mean, how we perceive the past and how we judge either the fact that they were fighting for the British or they were Irish people fighting for the British or they, we were part of the British Empire and they were fighting for a cause that they believed was the right thing to do. Can we just take a couple of different questions and then we'll come back? I did uh, attend uh, the memorial service in Messiaen Ridge in the 90th anniversary in 2008 of the ending of uh, World War One. But one thing growing up in my family home you know, uh, my great-grandfather died of his injuries, you know, as a result in, in Gallipoli. And my father was in the IRA, along with my grandfather, my maternal my grandfather. And growing up in an IRA Republican household, you know, my, my great-grandfather was never given a mention. You know, you don't talk about that in this home. And also civil war politics as well. So it was a right, right mix-up to grow up in that mixed messages. But I do believe that, you know, the day the, I wrote the book called The Day the Poppy Met the Shamrock. It's a very true story, and a lot of peace came into my life when I did acknowledge uh, my, gran my great-grandfather, I should say, in Bessian Ridge, even though he died in Gallipoli. I did memorize and peace came into my heart. And many of my friends now are from Portal Down and kicked with a different foot. Mm. Anyone else? I went to uh, Gallipoli at an occasion to be able to get there two years ago. I went as a tourist, and it was really, uh, it was, would I say life-changing, but it certainly gave me a totally different perspective on how things were. So like, it, it's, uh, and the, sorry, the other final thing was, was the interesting thing about the, the, the graves in Gallipoli, when you look at the Turkish graves, the men are all in their 30s. They were family people mm -hmm. defending their homeland. And again, that's lost in mm -hmm. a lot of the commentary that's given. It was sort of, oh, these, the, you know, the, 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 the Turkish Hun, the devil, but they were, def they were defending their homeland. And that aspect is sort of lost. So I suppose the message I, I find interesting, the thing I learned about it, is what you read about and the, the, the myths that have been put out are totally ridiculous. Most of the, the gravestones you see, if you haven't been to a, a, a graveyard like that, uh, you think, oh, there's loads of graves. But most of them have a soldier of the British, of the Dublin Fusiliers. There's no names to, at all. And to me, that's a great memorial. That's a reminder how futile the whole thing is. There's so many people lost, and nobody knows where they went. Or um, so we'll just maybe bring it back yeah. <coughs> um, to the, to I the guest on. I can comment in detail on many of these yeah. things. <laughs> so um, to the first point, which is that you know people kind of judging people in the past for their decisions from a point of view of now. Well, in histor historical terms, that I'd you know refer to that as like presentism, when people you know say why would you not do what I would do now? And why, you know, applying the standards of the present to the past, which is very true. And so, yeah, no, it is really important to look at these people and try to understand them on their own terms. And, you know, it, it can be very frustrating because, it, well, the trouble is we always, not always, but very frequently try to fit 
these people into whatever myth we're, or narrative we're telling ourselves about about the present. So even if we try to rescue them from censure or judgment from the point of view of now, often what we replace it with is, oh, isn't it very sad they're all victims? <laughs> or, um, oh, um, look, they've the sacrifices they've made for us and so on and so forth. The trouble with that is it implies that the world that, that we're in now is the direct result of, of, of a particular set of beliefs or things that happened. And, and, and we're still writing a narrative onto the past because, I mean, I used to have a Oh, years ago when I was an undergraduate, I had a, a job um, doing educational kind of tours as well for um, school students who'd come to the big National War Museum in, in, in Australia. And I would say to them, OK, well, what were Australian soldiers doing at Gallipoli? And they'd say, you know, why did they die? You know, what were they doing there? Well, they died so that we can live the kind of life that we live today. And as a matter of history, well, no, they didn't. I mean, that had absolutely nothing to do with why they were there. They did not die for liberty, freedom and the exact kind of democracy we have right now because they couldn't have envisaged that kind of outcome. They wouldn't have envisaged um, um, the kind of modern Australia that you have now. A lot of them conceived of themselves as British, for example. You know, 20% of the Australian Imperial Force, about, were actually born in Britain. You know, so they had a completely different conception of what the nation even was. Also, that particular campaign was not fought freedom, liberty or anything of the kind. It was a strategic gamble um, aimed at you know, a number of things. One, possibly opening up a sea route to Russia, who's an ally. They can't get anything out. You know, The other idea is weakening the Ottoman Empire, who's an enemy. And the other idea is they might get a backdoor into the central powers, who are the enemy. Now, none of these motivations have anything whatsoever to do with what these kids were telling me, which was that it was all about freedom. So I guess what I'm saying is that the trouble is it's not just that we try to give them the motives of now. Um, we also ascribe a meaning to the entire war from the point of view of now and then try to write those soldiers into it, which I think is a huge problem. Um, so I'm very sympathetic with that point of view, saying, well, you know, we can't pretend like they thought of the world the way we do now. Tom, could I bring you in for a kind of final word, but could you mention that how you think the Royal Dublin Fusiliers are remembered today and will be remembered in the, in yes, the kind of summer? Well, uh, I think maybe to answer the, the three questions together, you've discovered yeah. something. You've discovered a tangible part of your history and you've interpreted it yourself the way you want to interpret it, given what people like Jennifer and other professional historians produce in their textbooks. Right? So you read it and you make your own mind up and you discover your own losses. And it's up to, I think, from your perspective, this ladies here, it's up to Joe and Mary public to make their own mind up what way they want to go with this story. I, I'm certainly no apologist for any British imperialism. I'm very much aware of Easter week 1916 and what Patrick Pierce and they did for, for this country. I'm not here to spread any agenda. I'm simply, in the, probably in the classic historian's way, simply telling a story. And, you know, <laughs> you make your mind up where you want to take this. And I think one of the great discoveries about certainly us Southern Christian brothers educated Irish Catholics have made <laughs> in the last 10 years, we have discovered a part of our history, which is a terrible tragedy no matter what way you look at it. And we, we all had losses and we've all had our own little moments of silence where we reflected and put our own agenda on it and questioned ourselves, was this guy in the right place at the right time? Eugene Sheehy questioned it 30 years later. Did I do the right thing here? You know, That's the, I mean, it was a discovery for me and it was, a, it was a, a, a little fuse in me to say, somebody has to know about these tragedies and they were tragedies. And how the bigger picture is, is presented if you want to think about the role of, of myths and history and memory is that to think about it is 
you have one memory in Ireland which is deeply conflicted and, you know, certain things that are... You talked about the silences in your family, you know. You ha- in Australia, you have the exact opposite of... It's basically almost a secular religion, the way the First World War is remembered. Like, it is so... Remembered so positive and something so key that it's almost... It's hyper the other way. And so I think when you're thinking about about memory and about history and about myths, is often that the truth has got to be somewhere yeah. in the middle. We're just not sure exactly where it is. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps on those poignant and philosophical words, uh-huh. we can we can leave it there for this evening. Before we go to our final song, we'll um, welcome to Jennifer and to Tom and to all the Golian singers. Thanks especially to uh, all the staff at Coolock Library for the help, and uh, thanks to Donny, Dave, Alex, Neve, and Lauren, and all the Near FM team for all the work on the series. And okay, so we'll say Slán agus Banacht, and we'll hand you over to Frank Nugent. This song is called The Recruiting Sergeant. It's a parody on a previous ballad which was called The Peeler and the Goat, which was disparaging of the Royal Irish Constabulary, so it was against the anti-police song. And of course, this song is disparaging of a recruiting sergeant. And it's interesting because the song was written by a Dublin journalist called Seamus O'Farrell. And uh, he assisted in the formation of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. Oh, as I was walking down the road, a feeling fine and hearty, oh. Our recruiting sergeant says to me, oh, you'd look fine in khaki, oh. Oh, the king, he is in need of men, come read his proclamation, oh. Oh, a life in Flanders for you then, t'would be a fine vacation, oh. Oh, that may be so, says I to him, but tell me, Sergeant Dearie-o, oh, if I the pack stuck on me back, would I look fine and cheery-o? I'd make me work and drill until you had me one of French's, oh. Oh, it may be warm in Flanders, but it's drafty in them trenches, oh. Oh, the Sergeant smiled, he winked his eye, his smile was most provoking, oh. He twirled and twiddled his wee moustache, says he, I'm sure you're joking, oh. Oh, them sandbags are so nice and high, the wind you'd ne'er feel a blowing, oh. Oh, I winked at a colleen passing by, says I, what if it's snowing, oh. Ah, but rain or hail or sleet or snow, we're not going out to Flanders, oh. There's fighting in Dublin to be done. Let your sergeants and commanders go. Oh, let Englishmen for England fight. It's bloody time they started, oh. I bade the sergeant a jolly good night. Oh, and there and then we parted, oh. Shall I? This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.